You're listening to So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast about the world of writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm your co-host and CEO of the Australian Writer Centre, where you'll find courses, resources and a wonderfully supportive writing community. As you know, I usually co-host this podcast each week with the talented Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate, author extraordinaire. Her latest book is The Wolf's Howl, the second instalment in the Maven and Reeve mystery series, and it's available right now in bookstores, libraries and online. But today, this is one of our in-between episodes where we leave Alison to her authory adventures and we have a story session, just you me and our guest author of the week. In our story sessions, you'll hear from the author themselves about some insights into their writing life and processes, as well as the first chapter of a book that we recommend. Who knows, you may even discover your next favourite author or book. It's just one of the many ways we love to support our reading and writing community. This week, I've chosen Treasure and Dirt by Chris Hammer. This is the latest nail-biting novel from Chris, who is the award-winning author of the international bestsellers Scrublands, Silver and Trust. Here's the blurb from the book so you can find out a little bit more about what it's about. In the desolate outback town of Finnegan's Gap, police struggle to maintain law and order. Thieves pillage opal mines, religious fanatics recruit vulnerable young people and billionaires do as they please. Then an opal miner is found crucified and left to rot down his mine. Nothing about the miner's death is straightforward, not even who found the body. Sydney homicide detective Ivan Lukic is sent to investigate, assisted by inexperienced young investigator Nell Buchanan. But Finnegan's Gap has already ended one police career and damaged others, and soon both officers face damning allegations and internal investigations. Have Ivan and Nell been set up, and, if so, by whom? As time runs out, their only chance at redemption is to find the killer, but the more secrets they uncover, the more harrowing the mystery becomes, as events from years ago take on a startling new significance. For in Finnegan's Gap, opals, bodies and secrets don't stay buried forever. Now, before he reads from his prologue, Chris is going to share with us the inspiration behind this story and also some tips about writing, which I know you're going to love. I'll warn you that this does get a bit gruesome and there's some strong language, so just keep that in mind if you've got younger listeners with you. So here is Chris Hammer and his latest novel, Treasure and Dirt. Hello there, I'm Chris Hammer. I'm the author of Treasurer and Dirt. Uh, my new crime fiction novel follows on from Scrublands, Silver and Trust, although Treasure and Dirt is a standalone with new characters. Now, Valerie's asked me to record the answers to some questions and then to read from the first chapter of the book. So here we go. The first question is, what inspired me to write this story? And this is kind of interesting. I had this idea for a story set around a big mine, you know, with fly-in, fly-out workers, that sort of thing. And I was intending to set it somewhere near the Flinders Ranges in South Australia, mainly because, one, I'd never been there and I wanted to go and visit, and, two, it's a very spectacular landscape. That's what, you know, that's what the photos tell me. But then COVID hit and all the borders shut. 
and I couldn't get to South Australia and I couldn't get to Queensland, I couldn't get to Victoria. I live in Canberra. The only place I could go was New South Wales. And then one day I was shopping and just a chance encounter, I saw a woman and she was wearing an opal pendant and I had the idea, an opal mining town. I could still have the big industrial-scale mine, but I could also have the, the sole operators, the small opal miners. And so I got in my car and I drove to Lightning Ridge, which is still in New South Wales, just south of the Queensland border. And I met some fantastic people up there, you know, took me down their opal mine, showed me the local area. But anyway, it was just this kind of chance, happenstance and COVID that led me to the story, to set this story in an opal mining town. Okay, question number two is, can you describe your writing process? Okay, the mechanics of it are pretty straightforward. I get up in the morning, I grab a coffee, I sit at my desk and I start writing. Some days I get a lot done. I write thousands of words. Other days I'll struggle to write more than a sentence. Um, but I don't think that time is wasted. It means that I've come to some sort of fork in the road or some sort of obstacle, something I've got to work through. Then in the afternoons, I typically exercise or do housework, do shopping, you know, all that sort of thing. But even while I'm doing that, I tend to get more and more immersed in the story the longer I'm, I'm writing it. And some of my best ideas come to me when I'm, you know, riding my bike or swimming in a pool, something like that. Um, I tend to write multiple drafts and, then, and I kind of switch mentality. This is the other thing that I do in my writing process. When I'm actually writing, I'm kind of writing from inside the story, kind of subjectively. Other people have described it as writing with heart. Then later on, I'll edit and I'll edit objectively, or if you like, I edit with my head. So as I write, I'm in the story, I'm just trying to tell it the best way I can. But then when I'm editing, I'll be going, well, does that really work? Does that follow? Will readers understand what's happening here will they follow so that's a little bit about my process three what was the most challenging aspect of writing this book this is my fourth crime fiction book i wanted to try some new things and i also wanted to and needed to uh, invent some new protagonists so my first three books, Scrubland, Silver and Trust, feature a rather troubled journalist, Martin Scarsden, and his partner, Mandalay Blonde. I needed new characters. I, again, wanted to tell from two different points of view. I wanted to have history. So in some ways, it's a bit more ambitious. Every book I've written, I've tried to do new things with it. Um, so the challenge for me was coming up with something new and fresh, but also trying new stuff as well. Um, which leads me to question number four, what was the most rewarding aspect of writing this book? Well, it was that that all managed to come together. As I was writing the books, the characters grew on me more and more. They evolved. They became more intriguing. 
both the characters have come to the story with their own history, their own troubles. There's a kind of interesting dynamic between the two characters, which I really enjoyed exploring. I think it will work for readers. I found myself quite immersed in the book, and what I'm hoping is that readers will experience that same sort of immersive quality from the story. Question number five, what are your top three tips to aspiring writers? Okay, the first one I think is to enjoy it. I think writers, whether they're aspiring or whether they're established, can get too hooked up on what people think of them, what people think of their writing. Just try and enjoy it and just try and write a good book. And I think that's kind of second thing, tip, it's the work that matters, not what people think. And don't try and write to try and impress people. Um, You know, don't try and write a bestseller and put in stuff that you actually don't like, but you just think it's going to appeal to a publisher. Um, I don't think, you know, don't follow fashion. Don't try and write what you think might be selling at the moment. Just write the sort of book that you would like to read, I think. Um, And my third tip would be persistence. Uh, We all dream of, you know, our books getting published as if that's the be-all and end-all of writing. But really it's not. It's it's the beginning. You know, I'm onto my fourth book now. I'm really, I'm enjoying the process, but I'm learning more. I'm getting better. I'm picking up different kind of craft skills. So I think that's it's that idea of, you know, it's the journey, not the destination. All right, then that's the question and answer part over. And now I'm going to read the first chapter from my book, Treasure and Dirt. Not so much the first chapter, it's a prologue, just seven pages long, so stick with me. The night is perfect for ratting. A layer of high cloud is spread across the sky, blocking out the moon and the stars, sucking light from the world. Only the night vision goggles, military grade, allow for progress. The driver careful in the landscape rendered luminous easing the old truck between trees silhouetted against the radiant earth. It's like a video game, glowing and hyper-real, bleeding light at the edges. And yet this is life, unmistakably authentic. Here, the stakes are not theoretical. Here, there is no respawning, no second chances. Get caught ratting and there is no coming back. It might be possible to evade the violence and avoid the courts, but the shame would follow, leper-like, to other opal towns, Lightning Ridge, Whitecliffs, Cooperpedi, exile inescapable, reputation irredeemable, humiliation irreversible. So the four men proceed in silence, ratters, united by greed and needs unspoken by quiet desperations and divided by mutual loathing for who they are and what they've become. The engine, the only sound. At the top of the rise, above the far end of the opal fields, the driver slows the truck to a stop. This far along, the way, 
the road linking the West Reach to the town, the only access, the only egress, has splintered into multiple tracks. They drop the copper too with his goggles and army surplus walkie-talkie. From here, he can look back at the way as it undulates along the ridge line from Finnegan's Gap, 10 kilometres away. The town itself is hidden in its hollow, its aura glowing through the night vision goggles, but the intervening path is clear. The town is not so far, 15 minutes, but far enough that he can alert them at the first flare of headlights, far enough for them to get clear in time. Or so they hope. The truck moves forward, grinding down a gear, slowing even more as they leave the remnants of the track, moving cross-country, the driver's caution overriding his desire to get there, to get started. Through the thermal imaging goggles, the bonnet of the truck glows obscenely bright, its heat making it shine like a beacon. He knows no one else can see it, no one without the goggles, just the cockatoo on the ridge, but it makes him nervous all the same. And yet he can't afford to go any faster. The landscape is too treacherous, with its exposed mine shafts and ventilation holes, its mullock heaps and fallen trees and rusted-out machine parts. There's been no rain for four or five days, and yet he's concerned about lingering mud, the potential to skid, to lose control. He needs to avoid any mistakes. A puncture would leave them temporarily vulnerable. A broken axle would be disastrous. Finally, their destination comes into sight, marked by the darkened caravan. Next to the driver, the leader is experiencing a kind of calm. Settled now that the operation is underway, the sort of tranquility that used to visit him before combat. The preceding few hours are worse, hiding underground on his own barren claim, waiting for the opal fields to empty, his fellow ratters nervous and edgy, unable to sleep, unable to speak, forbidden by him from drinking or taking drugs. Four men trapped together, bound by circumstance. 200 metres from the mine shaft, the truck stops. The driver cuts the engine pivoting on the point of no return. And the leader climbs out. It's his operation. He's the one who must take the risks. They've been watching the mine for a week or so, on and off, through the rain, through the mounting heat, more diligently these past two nights. There's been no sighting of Jonas McGee. Not today, not yesterday. The intel must be right. He's out of town, living it up on his windfall, squandering his fortune. Hundreds of thousands of dollars, according to the rumour mill, maybe even millions. But gone for now, careless in his wealth, stupid in his luck, almost deserving of looting. Almost. The leader approaches the caravan. McGee has been staying out here, guarding his hoard against ratters, so said the grapevine. But not tonight. There is no sign of life. His truck is here, which is concerning, but it sits pitch black against the glowing earth, its engine cold. 
The leader approaches the caravan itself black, registering no heat signature whatsoever, apparently devoid of life. Nevertheless, he removes his goggles, places them carefully in his backpack, operating by touch alone. He pulls out a small flask of whiskey and, still operating by feel, removes the cap and spills a little down his front, then takes a swig, swirling it around his mouth before spitting it out. It is cover story that he's drunk and lost. Barely plausible, but hopefully enough. Should he be discovered, should Jonas be here, he will start to sing and carry on, loud enough to alert the others. But the for, but for the moment, he is quiet, standing motionless, hoping his eyes may yet adjust to the absence of light. As he waits, he listens. The night is silent, as if in anticipation. There is no wind, not even up here on the ridge, nothing to animate the darkness, nothing to rustle the leaves on the sparse iron barks and box guns. A dog barks in the distance, kilometres away, emphasising the void. It is so very dark without the goggles. It's all he can do to perceive the edge of the van against the clouded sky. He feels his way to the door, knocks once, knocks again, the sound like gunshots, holding his breath, the whiskey sharp on his tongue. But there is no sound from the van, no response, no movement. It's all okay. McGee is gone. The recent rains have put a hold on mining and he's taken off to enjoy his spoils. The leader breathes again. Doggles back on, he moves towards the mine. At the top of the shaft, all looks good. It's covered by its steel lid, padlock in place. Good. No one would be underground with the only exit locked down. He pulls out his radio, hits the button in three long dashes. The all clear. He hears the truck engine fire, watches it rumble towards him. Then the driver is out together with the third member of the crew, his lieutenant, pulling the tarpaulin from the back, exposing the gear. Everything is there in readiness. The electric winch, silent and effective. The padded buckets, the nylon ropes. There is no talk. They know their roles. The leader will go down the mine, dig for opals, extract the gems from the walls with his handheld excavator, not risking the heavy machinery any honest miner would use the diesel generators and the air compressors, the vacuum pumps. Now, here, stealth is all important. His second-in-command will collect the rubble, take it to the bottom of the shaft and fill the buckets. The driver will winch them to the surface, load the back of the truck. They'll be gone an hour before dawn, collecting the lookout along the way. Later in the day, mining the leader's own claim, the ore will be mixed with his. They will take it to the wash site, clean it, hidden in plain view, extracting the opals, downplaying their discoveries. The leader checks the lock, is relieved to see the brand. No need for the hacksaw then, bolt cutters will suffice. A fortune in gems, and the man can't be bothered buying himself a decent lock. The leader slices through the hardened steel and raises the lid flipping it back on its hinges. It's too easy. 
He hesitates only long enough to ensure he has what he needs, then starts down the shaft, a metre in diameter, a three-footer, straight down. He clings to the steel ladder, strung section by section from the framework of the lid, hanging free, swaying slightly. The shaft is ghost-like, hazy and dark, emitting little light, even using the goggles. Thirty metres down, he reaches the bottom. He removes his backpack and stows the goggles, replacing them with a conventional torch, a miner's headband. He flicks it on, the brightness flaring in the still of the mine, lighting the walls, the roof supports casting shadows through the mined-out cavern. He's in an open space, two and a half metres high, more than enough to stand. A ballroom. The roof is propped up by pine trunks, 30 centimetres in diameter, but still in place. Off in one corner, he can spy where these bolsters are taking the strain, bent and squashed at the top where the earth is trying to fall in on itself. He shrugs it off. The potential for a cave-in is the least of his worries, even after the rain of the previous week. The mine is tidier than most. Empty water bottles are stacked in a pile by the bottom of the ladder, ready to be lifted to the surface. Next to the bottles is a pile of wood, four by twos, not new but scavenged. McGee must have been shoring up the roof. Next to the wood is a large silver toolbox, padlock undone. More complacency. Carefully, he examines the footprints left in the dust finds the uppermost impressions and starts to follow them. Confident that they will lead to the most recent digging, the McGee's lucrative new discoveries. As he proceeds, the smell grows worse. What was merely a suggestion, a vague taint at the bottom of the ladder, steadily becomes insistent. What the fuck has he bastard been up to? So desperate to plunder the opals that he can't be bothered to bury his own shit? No, no, the smell is worse than that. It's the smell of roadkill, the smell of repressed memories. Maybe a wallaby has come to grief, fallen down one of the blower shafts. Not that that will stop him. Spiderwebs brush his face. He ignores them. Behind him he can hear the faint noise of the winch the bucket thudding against the steel ladder on the way down. His deputy must already be at the bottom. He comes to a cordon-off passage on plastic webbing strung across its entry, the sort used on roadworks. The tunnel is supported by a roughly made wooden framework. There's a piece of cardboard ripped from a carton with one word scrawled, unstable. He moves past it, past a blower hole, the vacuum tube still hanging from it, where McGee had been sucking out his fill. He must be getting closer. Past the hole, the smell grows markedly worse. His stomach turns and the hairs on the back of his head come alert. Something is wrong here, very wrong. He knows this smell. From another time, another land, and endless war. He passes a mining machine, an excavator. He's close now. And then he sees it, 
sees him. Jonas McGee, dead eyes staring, something small and black crawling from the corner of his mouth. The man is not just dead. He's being crucified, nailed to a timber frame, metal spikes through his wrists, black blood congealed around them, a ratter's drill placed by his feet like an offering, crucified, Christ-like. Except here the face holds no ecstasy, the eyes no rapture. The leader fights back an urge to vomit, pushes it down, disciplines himself. He knows he must leave no trace here. He hits the radio button, three short bursts, followed by another three. The warning, the message to get out fast, to get out now. He looks about, see what he needs, a piece of loose sacking. He lifts the drill, makes a snap decision. He needs to take it with him. He can leave nothing that implicates ratters. And then he slowly backs out using the sacking to erase his footprints behind him. They need to get away. They need to have never been here. Ha, and that's it. That's Treasure and Dirt, uh, my new book, out at the end of uh, September the 28th that's published in Australia. Um, thank you for listening, and I hope you read the book. Okay, well, I did warn you, right? That was so tense and creepy, and it's just the prologue. I loved Chris's advice to write with your heart and edit with your head. I think some people can get that the other way around. They think too much while they're writing and then can't be brutal when it comes to editing. You can hear more from Chris by going back to listen to episode 361 of the So You Want to Be a Writer podcast, this podcast, where we spoke to him following the release of his third novel, Trust. And if you're dying to write your own crime or thriller novel, there's no better place to start than with the course Anatomy of a Crime, How to Write About Murder at the Australian Writers' Centre. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our hugely popular course, How to Write About Murder, is all about creating more authentic action for your crime or thriller novel. Presented by award-winning crime author Candace Fox, this course covers nine modules of fascinating detail, taking you beyond the police tape to explore what motivates killers and how they go about their business. You'll also immerse yourself in the chase, from the murder scene and autopsy to the investigation that follows. Plus, because it's one of our on-demand courses, you'll get instant access and learn at your own pace with 12 months access to all course materials. You can find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash murder course. Thanks for listening to this special episode of So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find more details about the podcast and a wealth of writing resources and courses at writerscentre.com.au. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre. Connect with us on social media at writerscentreau, on Twitter and Instagram, and join our free podcast listener community on Facebook. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. Both Alison and I will be back to our regular programming in your next episode. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to chatting to you again next time.